0: I hope you guys are doing well. Uh, my name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, can turn to Ezra chapter 5. And any middle school students that want, y'all can slip out with Jeremy and Emily. And Autumn, y'all say hello to Autumn and her husband, Javon, our newest staff members. <clears throat> Autumn and Javon just came, uh, moved back after st- several years in New Zealand. Javon was studying to be a master carpenter, and they were youth pastors there in a local church. We're really excited to have her uh, on board with us. She'll be helping uh, in student ministry and helping Bo lead worship. So y'all make a point to reach out to them. Uh, One thing about the women's retreat you heard Luke uh, mention, uh, several of you are saying you'd like to come to some, but you can't come to all. Recognize it's difficult for many of you to do a Thursday night and an all-day Friday Uh, You can now sign up kind of a la carte based on the sessions that work for you. You can do that online if you have any questions about how to do that. Email Kim, Kim at StonebridgeMarietta.org, and she can walk you through that. So again, that's this week. We need you to sign up by tomorrow, so you got to make a quick decision, but you can sign up for the sessions that work for you schedule-wise. We would love to see you for as much of that as you can come to. Uh, I was thinking about Autumn. And thinking about Autumn, though the woman, not the season, made me think of Jim Cagle. Many of you know Jim. Uh, We have five people on our staff who are here directly because of ties to Jim Cagle. Jeremy Morris, Matt Nelson, now Autumn, Kaylee Freeman, who was leading worship here, was on our staff until about a year ago when she um, resigned to take care of her kids, and Luke Bentley, who's working with our fourth and fifth graders. All of those folks came through Lasseter High School FCA, and Jim was the faculty advisor for that FCA for years. And if you ask him, he'll say, well, all I did was you know turn on the lights or whatever. He's, he won't tell you anything, but he did a lot more than turn on the lights. He created this atmosphere for these students to grow in the Lord, and he invested in them and allowed them to invest in one another, and we have the benefit of that. We have people who came through Lasseter FCA in children's ministry, student ministry, and adult ministry. You know, it's a corny slogan, but we use it, do your deal. Like, what's the calling? What's the good works that God has created in advance for you to do? And for Jim's, in that season of his life, it was Lassiter FCA, and it can be easy at times to think, what influence do I have? I'm in an environment that maybe is hostile to a certain degree to faith, or I'm not allowed to openly share, or you know, or these kids are a lot younger than me, or whatever the reasons are that we would give for being useless. And I want to encourage you. It's not true. God has you where you are for a reason. Ask him, God, how do you want to use me? How do you want to use me to spur other people on to love and good deeds? How do you want to use me to love and to bless and serve other people? And I promise you, he will use you in ways that you can't imagine. So you think about that when you see Jim. And if these guys don't work out, then you blame Jim. It works out well for me either way. All right, Ezra 5. Let me give you a big recap. Try to get your mind around everything that we've been saying. 586 BC, the Babylonians, they level Jerusalem. They level the temple. They break down the walls. They burn down every building. They level all of the other fortified towns in Judah. They take off all the treasures of the temple, and they deport at least 10,000 of the best and the brightest. They just leave behind the poorest of the poor. 539, new king of the hill. His name's Cyrus. The Persians have overthrown the Babylonians. God stirs his heart. He is not a follower of God, but God stirs his heart to issue an edict to say to all the Jews who've been deported, who've been living in exile for decades, any of y'all that want, go home. Go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And 42,360 of the Jews choose to do that. They, come, they return to Jerusalem, and then they begin 538, 537, somewhere in there. The dates are a little fuzzy. They rebuild the altar. So now we've got worship has been reinstituted in Jerusalem. And then they begin shortly after that to rebuild the temple. But then they come uh, face-to-face with some opposition, There's some locals who've been living there for decades while the Jews have been in exile, and they take offense at what the Jews are doing, and so they intimidate them, and they frustrate them, and they frighten them, and the Jews quit working on the temple. 16 years they don't do anything. They're living in disobedience for 16 years. Their flesh patterns kind of kick in, and what initially maybe was a response to some fear and some intimidation, they just get selfish. They just get focused on themselves, they start rebuilding their own houses and they neglect the temple of God. And so then in August of 520, God sends a prophet named Haggai who says to the people, y'all got to get to work. You need to get to work. This drought that you've been experiencing, this famine that you've been experiencing, all of that's because you've been disobedient. Get back to work. And to their credit, in September of 520, the people begin to to rebuild the temple again. And then from October of 520 to February of 519, God works through Haggai and another prophet named Zechariah to call the people to repentance and to encourage them to keep working, to keep at it. And that's what we've been looking at for the past several months. And today we want to look at 29 verses. We're going to skim most of it. There's five verses that we're going to focus on. The other 24, it's really just copies of official correspondence between a guy named Tatene, who is the Persian governor of the area. It's called the Trans-Euphrates, where Jerusalem is. And Darius, who's the new king. So they're writing back and forth about the Jews and about the work that they're doing. and It's not that it's unimportant. It's just repetitive. And so we're going to skim that. What I want us to focus on are the first five verses that we're going to look at in chapter 5. And I want you to try to look at them through the lens of the election. Uh, That's what we're going to try to talk about. And we'll see if we can be equally offensive to everybody in the room. Now, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet a descendant of Iddo prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, so he's the Jewish governor. He would have been under this guy, Tatenay. the Zerubbabel, the Jewish governor, and Joshua, who was the high priest, they set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, were there with them, supporting Zerubbabel and Joshua. At that time, Tatane, who was the governor of the Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar-Bosene and their associates went to them and said, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? They also asked, what are the names of those who are constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to King Darius and his written reply be received. So the guys the Jews are rebuilding the temple in obedience to the Lord. This guy Tatane comes, and I feel like it's an accusation. I don't feel like it's a genuine inquiry. I think he's saying, he's, you know, who gave you permission to do this? And by the way, can I get your names? That to me is pretty intimidating if you've got a guy, an official coming and saying, I want to take your name, and I'm going to send it back to the king. And so he sends a letter saying, who, Darius, what, what, what's going on here? I'll read you a little bit of the letter. Uh, Here, chapter five, the king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God, and the people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls, and the work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction, that is, under Zerubbabel and Joshua's direction. We questioned the elders and said, who authorized you to rebuild the temple and finish it? We also asked them their names, so we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. And then the Jews, their response is, well, Cyrus, Darius' two-times predecessor, not the guy immediately before Darius, but the guy before that. He's the one who said it was okay for us to build it. So Tatnai closes his letter. If it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did, in fact, issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. So again, that feels to me much more accusatory than a genuine inquiry. And then Darius, he does it. He goes and searches the archives. Well, he doesn't. I'm sure he has somebody do that. And they find the decree of Cyrus and he copies that down and says, yeah, Cyrus did tell them that they could rebuild the temple. So here's how uh, Darius replies. Now then, Tatane and Shethar-Bosene and you other officials of that province, stay away from there. Don't interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews, that's Zerubbabel, and the Jewish elders rebuild the house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of the house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury. How about that? From the revenues of trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil as requested by the priests in Jerusalem must be given them daily without fail that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his son. So you hear Darius' reply. Again, this, this guy's not following God. He's just a pagan king. And he, Cyrus said, yeah, rebuild the temple. So he says to Tatnai and the other local officials, I got to you know, stay away from these guys. Keep your hands off of what they're doing. Then he goes farther and says, I need y'all to pay for it. The construction costs, so they need to come out of the taxes that y'all are collecting from your region. And then even farther than that, I need to make sure that you're giving the Jewish priests what they need to offer sacrifices and offerings, what they need to worship their God. So you give them whatever animals they need. You give them wine, salt, olive oil, whatever, whatever they say they need to offer daily sacrifices to worship God. You give them that, and they'll make sure that they're praying for me and for my sons pretty astounding. It's pretty astounding. We'll talk more about the rebuilding of the temple next week. Again, today, I want to focus just on those first five verses. And if there's anything that we can pull, uh, thinking back on the election that apparently is still, still isn't over. So for you, some of you, you feel like, hey, Joe Biden, that guy's an answer to prayer. And some of you feel like Joe Biden, that guy's a big mistake. Some of you are looking at Cobb County and you're Thrilled that it turned blue. And some of you are troubled, and some of you are upset, and some of you are a mixed bag. You're not really sure how you feel. And again, so hopefully this will be stepping on everybody's toes equally. From the first five verses, there's only two things I want you to remember. I want you to walk out of here with two thoughts. One, the importance of sitting under the Word of God. And two, to remember that our assignment doesn't change. Those two things sit under the word of God and your assignment hasn't changed. So we've got these prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and they're a gift to the returnees. As soon as they start rebuilding, they run right back into the same problem they had 16 years before. When they started rebuilding the temple 16 years before, there were some locals who didn't like it. And so they started pushing back and they intimidated them They frustrated them. They discouraged them. You can read all about that in the beginning of chapter 4. And now they've begun to work again, and the same thing happens. you got the government official with this clipboard coming around and saying, who told you you could do this, and let me have your name? I'm going to tell the king. That's a scary thing. If you're part of this kind of bedraggled minority without any political power, to have your name passed up to the king, that's not making anybody sleep good at night. But that's what Tatanay is saying to the returnees. And they have a choice in that moment. What are we going to do? We've been looking at the words of Haggai and Zechariah for the past couple of months, and they're wonderful. You can think about some of the things God has said to the people. Most, I think for us in Haggai, when he says to them on December, I think it's 18th to 520 B.C., he says, from this day on. From this day on, I'm going to bless you. There's a clear line of demarcation, a line in the sand. Things are going to change for you guys. But things don't change immediately. Think about Zachariah's eight visions that he has that night that we've been looking at. These words of encouragement. I'm going to rebuild the temple. I'm going to rebuild the walls of the city. It's going to be more glorious than it was before. I'm going to judge the nations that have judged you. None of those things have happened yet. The wall's still in ruins, the, the, the temple's a bunch of rubble, the Persians are still on the throne, and they have a choice. What am I going to believe? Am I going to believe what Haggai and Zechariah are saying to me, even though I can't see it? Or am I going to believe what I can see with my eyes here on the ground? And Am I going to get scared again? And am I going to get discouraged again? And am I going to quit again? Those are the two choices. Are they going to be shaped by the word of God to them through Haggai and Zechariah? Or are they going to be shaped by what they're seeing with their eyes on the ground and the threats, the intimidation of Tatanai and and the locals? And to their credit, they choose to sit under the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah to allow those words to be the formative ones in their life. What about you, and what about me? 2018, the Nielsen group did a, did a survey. How about this? The average American consumes 11 hours of media a day. So for some of y'all, that's how long you're awake. 11 hours a day. That's computers, phones, TV, print, all of it across the board. We're sitting under the influence of Hollywood and Madison Avenue and Washington, D.C. and Facebook and Instagram and Google and the way they curate what we see, we're sitting under their influence 11 hours a day. Even if you're not doing that much, you're doing a lot. And we're fooling ourselves if we think that doesn't influence us. If we think that's not shaping our hearts if that's not shaping our minds and that's not shaping our values and our priorities and our perspective, we're fooling ourselves. The guys who are behind that, this isn't a conspiracy theory. It's just reality. The guys who are doing those things are really smart and they're really greedy. And the way they make their money is to get us to buy what they're selling. They are really, really good at it. And if we think we are not influenced, when we consume six or eight or ten or more hours a day of, we'll just call it secular, just not in the sense of bad, just in the sense of not God, secular media, secular influence, if, that, if we think that's not shaping us, we're fooling ourselves. I'm not saying unplug and quit. Like that, that ship has sailed. What I'm saying is, how much time are you spending sitting under the Word of God? I don't just mean reading the Bible. Some of you, you listen to podcasts and that, about uh, you know, sermons or Christian folks that are looking at current events or pop culture from a Christian perspective. That's sitting to me under the Word of God. Bible studies, small groups, how about just conversations? If you have a conversation with somebody and part of what you're asking is, what do you think God's doing? Like, what's God saying to us? What's God saying to us right now? I'm looking here at Esther. What's God saying to us on this campus at the University of Virginia? What's going on here? Are you ever asking that question? All of that to me is sitting under the Word of God. It's not just reading the Bible. That's a primary piece for sure. But it's all of the ways that we're saying, and again, it's not just consuming or not just reading. It's actually putting myself under the authority of what God is saying. God, I'm going to allow what you're saying to me to shape my worldview, to shape my value system, to tell me what is right and what is wrong, to tell me what is a legitimate problem and a legitimate solution to those problems. I'm going to allow all of those things to flow from your word, not necessarily from Washington or Hollywood or social media. How much time are you spending I was thinking this may be my lack of faith. I'm like, we're not going to get to 11 hours. And I think that's all right. But can we move the needle a little bit? Can we take a step towards sitting under the word of God? Otherwise, you're allowing yourself and the deepest part of who you are to be formed and shaped by someone other than him. And I guarantee you, whoever is doing it is not as wise as him, is not as loving as him, is not as kind as him, is not as righteous as him, is not as just as him, and doesn't have your best in mind to the degree that he does. So why would we allow somebody who's less than him to shape us so fundamentally? But we do it all the time. The importance of sitting under the word of God. I read the Republican platform and I read the Democratic Party platform. Neither one of those things is a pure reflection of the word of God. That's not news to you. But it's true. Thinking about this election, neither one of those parties is a full representation of what God's desires are for us as a community and for our nation. We want to be shaped by his word more than by any party platform. Second thing I wanted you to remember, your assignment never changes. It's obvious, but it's easy to overlook. In 538, 539, when God stirred Cyrus to say, send the people back, he wanted the temple rebuilt. In 520, he still wanted the temple rebuilt. 18-year gap, God still wanted the temple rebuilt. That was the reason he sent them home. It wasn't done yet. Even though you have a new king, you have people who've been born, people who've been married, people who died, people who uh, you'd had a famine. You have people who built their own, built houses. You had all kinds. Of, think of all the life that you've experienced since 2002, in the last 18 years. All of the things that have happened in your life and in your world. God's assignment didn't change, and His assignment for us hasn't changed since 33 A.D. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's the same assignment. Make disciples of all nations. Cooperate with God in the establishment of his kingdom here in our community or wherever he's planted you as it is in heaven. That hasn't changed it hasn't changed in the last 18 years. It hasn't changed in the last 2,000 years. It's going to be the same in 2038, and until Jesus returns, that is the assignment. It doesn't matter who's in charge. It doesn't matter if your guy won or lost. It doesn't matter if your party has power or not. Your assignment as a son or a daughter of God has not changed. So broad generalizations, stereotypes, Christians, I can't vote for Donald Trump. That guy's a racist. I can't vote for him. Look at what he's done. It's not just that he hasn't brought people together. He's actually exacerbated racial tension. Seems to have kind of made a living on that over the last few years. Maybe most recently, at least, in a debate, he can't even, he struggles to condemn white supremacist groups. The Washington Post does a poll in January, 80%, 8 out of 10 black Americans say that guy's a racist. And so you've got Christians in the Capital C Church, evangelical Christians like, I can't vote for that guy. I just can't do it. A vote for him is a vote for racism. For those of you who voted for him, there's a push point there for you, a challenge. We'll just use four years as, our, as a, the horizon for us because we get to enjoy the circus again in four more years. What does it look like for you to say, I voted for this guy who many feel is a racist, and I'm going to lean against that. I'm going to recognize, I'm going to sit under the authority of the word, and I'm going to acknowledge that racism is a sin. And that any person or structure or policy or institution that pushes people down or holds people back because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity is wrong. It's unrighteous and it needs to be changed. I'm going to recognize my assignment has not changed. That everybody on the planet has been created in the image of God regardless of color or ethnicity. That Jesus died to redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so I'm going to work towards that. I'm going to acknowledge the places where, as a white person, I've benefited from being white. I'm going to ask God to give me empathy for people who have struggled because of their own color and ethnicity, where that has been something that's pushed them down or held them back. And I'm going to ask God to help me form genuine friendships across racial and economic and social lines. That's recognize, That's putting yourself under the authority of the word, sitting under the word. And recognizing your assignment hasn't changed. There are Christians who said, I can't vote for Biden. He's pro-choice. Maybe early in his career he wasn't, but he came on record and said, reproductive rights are a constitutional right and every woman should have that right. He's saying every woman should have the right to an abortion. At what point do we say, hey, abortion is a sin. You're killing a baby. And we can talk about when is abortion the lesser of two evils. But to just say, hey, it's a choice, and, any, and a woman should have that choice whenever she wants, that's unrighteous. And a vote for him was a vote for a pro-choice candidate. And so if you voted for him, the push point for you, maybe it's to lean against that. Again, I'm speaking stereotypically. Two of the reasons that the church said the church... There are Christians who said, I can't vote for Trump because he's a racist. I can't vote for Biden because he's pro-choice. And if you, whichever choice you made to sit under the authority of the word and to say abortion is a sin, it's unrighteous. And then to say my assignment has not changed. I'm to make disciples of all nations and I'm to see the kingdom of God come here in Marietta as it is in heaven. And so I'm going to walk down the street to First Care Women's Clinic our local crisis pregnancy center, and I'm going to ask Lori Parker, the director, how I can help. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to pick it. I'm going to start throwing names around at women who are struggling with an unexpected pregnancy. Like Jesus did, I'm going to step into a place of pain and confusion and do my best to help. That's what I'm going to do. The question of access to abortion is decided above our pay grade. But the demand for it, we have a part to play there. Again, that's, both of those are just broad generalizations. Those are stereotypes. But I want to get you thinking, what does it look like for me on November 8th to sit under the authority of the word versus the authority of a political party or the authority of a personality? Or the authority of a marketing campaign, or the authority of a a worldview that does not align with the Bible? What does it look like for you on November 8th, whether your guy won or lost, whether your party gained power or lost power? What does it look like for you to say, My assignment has not changed one bit? I'm still called to make disciples of all nations. I'm still called to cooperate with God in the work that he's doing to establish his rule and reign here on earth as it is in heaven. Close with this one thought. Our little five-verse section begins, this just throwaway line. God was over them. And then it closes with, God had his eye on them. I don't like the phrase, God is in control. To me, it speaks to... when I hear that, I think, well, everything that happens happens because God wants it to happen, and I don't think that's true. I think things happen all the time that God doesn't want to happen, but he's sovereign and he always accomplishes his purposes. And so I would say when things happen that God doesn't want to happen, he's able to make good things out of those things. That's what it means for him to be sovereign. He always accomplishes his will. And so as you sit here today, again, if you're a guy won or you're a guy lost if your party advanced or your party took a step back, what I want you to hear is that God is sovereign. He worked in spite of Tatani, who was actively opposing his work. He worked through Darius, who was not submitted to him at all, wasn't one of his people. God's not bound by who is or is not in power or control. God will accomplish his purposes And I hope that both gives you hope and gives you comfort this day. Submit yourself. Sit under the Word. Allow it to form and shape your perspective on what is happening, on what is important, on what is righteous and what is unrighteous. Allow the Word to do that. And remember your assignment. It hadn't changed. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge that you're sovereign, that you accomplish your purposes. And I want to pray for those who are distraught this morning and that you would comfort them. I pray even for that bit of conviction that would say you might have had your hope in the wrong thing. That we would place our hope in you. And God, I also want to pray for those who are elated this morning and thrilled at the changes in our government. And I pray for them. And again, just a real sense of keeping their hopes tied to you and not to any person or platform. And so if you're willing, I just encourage you to do this. God, I want to right now commit to sitting under your word. I'm not asking you to commit to reading the Bible for an hour a day. I'm just saying, will you in your heart heart, make a commitment now? God, I want to sit under your word. I want to be formed and shaped primarily by your truth. I want what you say to be the the bedrock, the foundation for how I make value decisions, for how I interpret my circumstances, for how my priorities are uh, aligned, and for how I navigate through life. And would you bring conviction to me when I'm falling under the sway of voices that aren't yours? God, I want to re-up, acknowledge my assignment hasn't changed. You've still called me to make disciples of all nations. You've still called me to cooperate with you in the establishment of your kingdom here in Marietta and around the world. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if that's being a faculty advisor at Lassiter's FCA or doing something else. But God, I'm in. Use me however you want. And in the midst of all of these things, my bedrock, God, is that you are sovereign, that you will accomplish your purposes, that you will expose and destroy all of the works of the devil, that you will fully establish your rule in your reign, that your church will continue to grow both in number and in depth, that righteousness and justice, that peace and joy will prevail. Those things are going to happen. Because you've said so. And so I take comfort and hope in that reality. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody good? Nobody left, so you're at least, you're at least polite. So here's how we're going to close. We're going to close with worship. Just a reminder that God is sovereign. I want you, and some of you, maybe it's a good expression for you, maybe a good release. The altar will be open. You can come and pray. You can pray for yourself. You can pray for our city. You can pray for our world. We won't mess with you. You just come and pray. You can kneel or you can stand. Some of you came in with concerns. And if we've got some prayer rooms over here in the, the room next door. If you want to talk with somebody and have them pray with you about a need that you brought in this morning, we would love the opportunity to do that, and Bo will dismiss us in about three or four minutes. Good? All right, you guys stand
1: and respond how you're feeling led. Hey guys, it's uh, Matt Nelson. Judd Reels with me. I asked Judd to come and to share with us um, that we can just be in here to be able to encourage you. We were listening to the message the same to me you guys were and wanted to be able to just reiterate a couple of points, a couple of things for you guys to think about um, over the coming days. And so for me, this was really pressed upon me, Joe. this idea of what, what are we allowing ourselves to sit under um, and for us to be able to really be sitting underneath God's Word. The stats were were very surprising. Uh, that 11 hours is really uncomfortable, but it's eye-opening that, that if we have that much competing against us, um, how much time are we sitting under the influence of God and His Word? Uh, so if you're on Facebook, you can see in the comments section I posted a reading plan. that would just encourage you guys to be able to to look at. This may be something for you to help sit underneath the God's Word. It's a 61-day chronological reading plan that really just walks you through all of the key events in the storyline of Scripture that we see throughout the Bible. Uh, and I would just encourage you to check this out. This may be a real easy way to read three to six uh, chapters a day and really be able to um, allow God to uh, speak in your life, that you'd be sitting underneath his word and sitting in his story. So, Jed, also, love for you to share what you're hearing.
2: Thanks, Matt. One thing that David said that stood out to me was that Jesus engaged with the people who are hurting and suffering. And I feel like he still does that today. And it's hard to engage with someone who you can't see. So I feel like that's where the church, that's what part of our assignment is to, to be God's hands and feet. And so if, if you find yourself in that position today, I'd encourage you to find that connect card on the dialogue section and connect with us. That you know, Let us know how we can be praying for you. And maybe you want to connect actually with Matt or someone else and just bring that connection together. And Matt, I feel like there's one other area and that's for people who are doing their deal or, or as David said, doing their assignment and they've forgotten the the, the personal relationship that God wants to have with us that it's not just about doing the work but that he wants to know us and he wants to be known by us and so I encourage you that you know sometimes we go through dry spells and we need a brother or sister to come alongside of us and pray for us or pray with us and if that's you today I, again I encourage you to look at that connect card and connect and let us know how we can be praying for you because it's our heart and desire to see you thrive in what God has for you
1: all right, thank you, Jed. I'm, I'm just glad you guys could be able to join us again. We're praying for you, remembering you, we're talking about you, we care for you, and uh, we play that, pray that today can just be a, a blessing to you today. Hope you guys have a great day. Thanks for joining.